Thank you, Jessica. And before we move on, one more thing. There's an announcement that we can't pass over. Mitch, we want to say congratulations on retirement. Mitch finished his final day on Friday after 40 years at the same place, which so unheard of these days to be in one place for so long and we know you've loved your job and we just believe God has lots of blessings as you step off into what he's got next for you because we we know you're not done right God's got lots more for you today well kids today is the start of word kids back in your program downstairs so quick listen to my instructions miss robin is going to go to the back Put your mask back on. Parents, you have to stay here. We don't want you contaminating their area, so they can follow Miss Robin down this morning. Hurry it up there, Robin. Get into position for them. <laughs> okay, guys, go and have some fun in your class. Oh. Well, for those of you that are still here stuck with me, <laughs> how's everyone doing this morning? You know, Father, we just thank you for your presence here in this place. You know, you are just so good, God. Whenever we gather in your name, there you are in the midst of us. We're just so glad that we can just open our hearts and receive from your presence, Lord. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well... Last week, as we were finishing up our Simple Things series, we were talking about growing up spiritually, and we started talking about the heart and creating an environment for growth, but as I was going through, you know, what we had talked about last week, and then, you know, whenever you put together a series, you always end up with a whole bunch of other information that's really good, but that didn't fit in there. And as I was going through, just thinking about the heart, there's so many good things that the Bible has to say about your heart. But when we think about the heart, from a definition standpoint, it can seem a little abstract. But from an application standpoint, if you really think about it, you know exactly what we're talking about. What do I mean by that? Well, have you ever talked, or talked about a, a sports event and you had the, you know, the star athlete, the one who really gave it his all. What do you say? He said, they really played their heart out. Now, what are we saying when we say that? We're saying that what was the drive within them wouldn't let them give up. It wouldn't let that person, whoever it may be, it wouldn't let them only go half the way. It didn't allow them to ease off. It didn't allow them to be like, okay, well, so-and-so, I think they can handle it. No, when we say someone played their heart out, it meant they went full tilt the whole time. There was no let up in them. You know, you ever been in a meeting and things are going long and it's just like people are talking and then someone says, you know what, we need to just get down to the heart of the matter. What, is there, what are they saying? Let's get down, let's cut out all the other BS, let's just say, what is it you actually want? What is it you are looking for to get out of this meeting? What are we talking about? What is inside of you that what is the purpose that we showed up to today? Maybe you've seen someone who's done something nice for someone else and be like, oh, they have a good heart. What are you saying? 
You're saying that there's something on inside of them that motivated them to compassion and to kindness and to go out of their way to do something that most others wouldn't. Now, when we talk about those three examples that I just gave you, those are all positive things. We looked at what they were doing and the, the things that, the attributes that they had, the things that inspired them, and we looked at them and said, they are good. They are worthwhile. They are something to esteem to. But do you know that the person who didn't play with all their heart had heart, just not the heart that you thought was good? And so we always talk about those who have their hearts their ambitions, their attributes, their passions filled with good things, but just as much those who don't have those qualities, they're operating out of their heart. Just as much as the other person, we just don't like what's in their heart. <laughs> oh, come on, we might as well just be real honest. And so when we talk about the practical application of what we were talking back, and we'll do some review in a moment, we know how this is applied. We see it every day. These are things that are recognizable. And from a definition standpoint, we said that it's the, the Greek word cardia, which is where we get our name for you know, cardiologists or cardio, which is a dirty word for a lot of people. It means to get your heart pumping or a heart doctor, a heart specialist. And so cardia is where we get that word. And in its simplest definition, it means the center or the seat of spiritual life. And I don't like that definition because it's not a full rounded definition based upon how it is even used in the Bible. It's a very one-sided definition. So as we look a little bit deeper in the more broad, uh, deeper definition of it, it's the soul or the mind as it is the fountain or the seed of the thoughts, the passions, the desires, the appetites, the affections, the purposes, the endeavors. And here even this is limited because it forgets one part of our being. Paul said that we are a spirit, soul, and a body. And so the things that we let be dominant out of those three parts that make up who we are, those get imprinted into our heart and they serve as our reactions, our first instincts. And the word that is in that definition that is the most important is fountain. Because what does a fountain do? It springs forth. This is something that just happens naturally. You ever been in a situation where things just all of a sudden spring out of you? That came because of the programming of your heart. Because what you had put in was now coming into action in that moment. What we're talking about is there's subconscious programming that we've allowed ourselves to be imprinted with that determines most of our reactions and responses. As we told you last week that neurologists say that 95% of our desires and passions and actions come subconsciously and that only 5% of our, 5 of our actions are deliberate. Most of the day, you are on autopilot responding to how you've been programmed. And so when we talk about the heart, we're talking about the operating programming or parameters that we've allowed ourselves to be imprinted on us by our decisions. And there's things that we've picked up from others that we've allowed into our lives. But in the end, ultimately, you are the one at the keyboard of your computer of life 
programming what you allow and what you will not allow. So this morning I want to turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. How's everybody doing? We've got a lot of places to cover this morning, so I'll try and slow down and you try and keep up. Agreed? In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure water. It says, let us draw near with a true heart. I like how the classic version of the Amplified Version says this. In the same verse, it says, let us all come forward and draw near with a true, an honest and sincere heart. You know, you always know when you're being honest. You may be able to fool others, but you know you. And more importantly, God knows you. And there's no fooling him. You may fool others for a season, but eventually the real you shines forth, right? And so he says, let us all come forward and draw near with a true, an honest and sincere hearts in unqualified assurance and absolute conviction engendered by faith. I like what that says. It's saying we should program our hearts in a way that we are honest with ourselves and become fully reliant on God. I love what unqualified means. It means I didn't look at the other evidence. I didn't look at everything else. I took God's perspective and I said, let's go with that one. An unqualified assurance and an absolute conviction engendered by faith. And it goes on to say that by leaning, the, that leaning of the entire human personality, all of your parts, leaning them on God in absolute trust and confidence in his power, his wisdom, and his goodness. And so the Bible tells us that we can program our hearts in a way that the first response and the most important response is that we become fully reliant on whatever it is that he has said about us. We take the word, we open it up, and we say, that's what God said about me, so I'm going to go ahead and believe it. That's what God said I could do, so I'm going to go ahead and walk in it. This is what the world says, and it's a bunch of garbage, so I'll believe God over it. More importantly, this is what I think and this is what God thinks and I choose to look at my thoughts as garbage and take his over mine. Now that's when you get honest. When you say, what do I want in this situation? What are I really wanting to do? Because we can try and be manipulative. Come on, I'm not the only one. Don't look so holy. We can try... To bring our agenda and our thoughts and our purposes to the table. And true honesty is when we say, this is what I want and now I choose to yield them to God's. That's an honest and sincere heart. And the last part in the Amplified Version says, having our hearts sprinkled and purified from a guilty evil conscience and our bodies cleansed with a pure water. But when he says guilty, evil, conscious, we automatically run the root of thinking, me doing bad things. But that word that's used here in the Greek is actually nothing to do with that. The word that they use for guilty actually refers to trying to work out your own salvation by means of the law. When it says purified from a guilty conscience... It takes the labor 
and the toil, and the word I love that is in there is annoyances, and pushes them away. You know, there's little annoyances that can pop up. There's little labors that pop up in our life from day to day. And it's for us to say, you are a problem, but you're not important. You are a distraction, but God still holds true. You are present, but I'll yield to a higher presence. And so it says, having our hearts sprinkled and purified from all of those things that try to pull us into our own strength, our own ability, and being cleansed from them. You know, as we quoted last week, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 24, verse 6, he says, this is God speaking, he says, for I will set my eyes on them for good. That is enough there to stop and have a shouting party. I will set my eyes on you for good, which means that if it's not good, it's not God. And if it's not good, it shouldn't demand my attention. It shouldn't demand my affections. It should be shifted away from that because God set his eyes on me for good. And he says, and I will bring them back. And it's speaking of the children of Israel returning out of exile. From wherever it is we wander, God is always trying to draw our hearts back to him. And he says, and I will build them up and not pull them down. Religion needs to get a hold of that. God is not in the business of breaking people. He's in the business of building them up. He said, I will plant them, and I will not pluck them up. And then I'll give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. I like the picture that that describes there when he says, they'll return to me with a whole heart, because if you ever had someone say, oh, that person really did that half-heartedly, you know, we can treat the things of God like that, where we, we bring parts of our intentions, parts of our desires, and he, but that's not God. He said, I'm drawing them to return to me with their whole heart. No areas off limits. When we open up and freely say, God, you can have all of me and I'll yield my desires and affections, you find yourself with better desires and affections. And the things you used to think were important, the things that you used to think should have dominance in your life no longer hold value. And what Jeremiah prophesies here in Jeremiah 24 is the exact opposite of how Jesus pointed out what the Pharisees were. In Matthew 15, 8, he said, these people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I think that shows a picture of they were putting on a show for everyone, but God doesn't look at the show. He looks at the heart. And when we look at ourselves through the lens of the word, what happens is, it says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So if you don't know what your heart is really speaking, put the word in front of it, and it'll be like, oh, that, I'm different here, I'm different here, I'm different here, and then we go, let them become one. And the thing we must know right now is that a heart can be changed in a moment. 
It doesn't matter where you are. It can be changed. You are not stuck. You are not here forever in the position you are. You may have had great progress from where you, what you used to be, but you're not stuck where you are now. A heart can be changed in a moment. And how do I know that? Because you got saved. And at one point, your heart was opposed to God. It was far from God. And the word entered, your heart opened, and you were transformed. As Romans 10.10 says, For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So at the moment that you came in contact with God, you had a choice that you were going to let down the walls and let him change you. So a heart can be changed in a moment. I think that's what Kenneth Copeland's been preaching for over 50 years, where he says one word from God can change your life. And that never stops being true. Your life can be changed every day by letting God speak to you one word. But though a heart can be changed in a moment... We also need to take and to look at it through the lens of what happened in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul said to the Galatians, he said, I, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel. So what was he saying? The Galatians, after Paul had preached to them, after their lives have been changed, others came in... And they allowed the programming of others to become their programming. And so a heart can be changed in a moment, but it should be reinforced for a lifetime. The pursuit of God is a daily endeavor. It's not actually even a daily endeavor. It's a moment by moment. We live by grace one moment at a time. Daily grace is great for some, but I need second by second. Sometimes we need to go down by millisecond by millisecond. So our hearts can be transformed, but as, we'll, as we can move towards God in our affections, our desires, our intentions, and all of that, we can move ourselves back away. You know, he doesn't change. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how come sometimes I wake up and I feel like I want to, and other days I wake up when I don't? He didn't change. But the things we've allowed to influence us force us to move closer or further from him. Because the next verse after tells us, telling us of his unchangeable nature, it tells us a warning. Don't be carried about by various or strange doctrines, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace. What does grace tell us? That it's not my strength. It's not my ability. It's not my goodness. It's his. And that each day I need to yield my strength so that I can take on a better strength that I can't even comprehend. The word here that he uses for establish is the word babeo, which means to make firm or confirm. And as I was reading that this week, I just thought of the, you ever heard the saying, trust but verify? When a situation comes up, it may come from a trustworthy source. Go ahead and verify it through the word. And allow yourself to be established 
upon grace. Every day, add to the foundation. Every day, go ahead, start your day confirming his goodness in your life, saying, God, I know that you have not changed today, so today I woke up in the midst of your ocean of grace. I woke up in the midst of your goodness, and today, as the, the psalmist said, you have daily loaded me with benefits, and I choose not to forget them, how you have forgiven all of my sins, and you've healed all of my diseases. I confirm his goodness in the morning. That's why David said early in the morning shall I praise you. Why? He set his direction. He confirmed that this is the right way to be going. Now David didn't always do it perfect. He had a lot of mess in his life, but thank God he knew how to point the compass back to God. And we'll never do it perfect until we lose, leave this world, but we should know how to point the compass back and establish our hearts in grace. And as we were talking about our programming and how 95% of what we do just happens instinctually or almost subconsciously, something that they all, those same neuroscientists also said is that when you have to work hard on something to change it, it is a result of our current programming not supporting what you're trying to do. Anybody ever tried to take on a new exercise routine or a new food diet? And it's like a struggle. You're like, my goodness, why is this so hard? It's because your current programming does not support it. It's used to watching Netflix every night, doing nothing, and it's saying, don't put me on that bike again. Don't make me do it. I don't like the broccoli. It's our programming speaking out to us saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to change. But guess what? It doesn't get a choice. Continue. It's kind of like reading a book. You get through the book, and it was like, oh, that was a good book, and you put it down, and you do nothing about it, what happens? It does you of no value. But when you take what was written in it and begin to apply it daily, you begin to walk in the wisdom that was given in it. And so every day we have a choice to walk in the wisdom that he is given in his word. Or not. But when something is difficult to change, that's how you know what programs you need to change. It says, I'm moving in the right direction. This is the right path for me. There's things that I've allowed to slide back in the way between me and God. God never moves and he never puts up walls, but we do. And so in the time that we have left this morning, I want to take a look at the ministry of Jesus. And in Mark chapter 6, where we're at with Jesus' ministry, it's at the height of his popularity. He's being thronged with crowds, and we think that Jesus being Jesus, that that's how his ministry stayed, but it actually didn't. It came a point in Jesus' ministry where he said to his followers, can you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood? And what was he saying is, can you really let your heart be transformed like mine has been, and walk this path. It's not an easy path. And it says, many turned away from him and followed him no more. So this is just before that happens. At the height of his ministry, where thousands are thronging him, coming to hear his wisdom. But there's a difference between hearing the wisdom and then saying, I want to take it and apply it in my life. And that's why the crowds left. Because many get excited about what the word says. Few want to walk the path. 
And so in Mark chapter 6, at the height of this popularity, verse 33, it says, But the multitude saw him departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all of the cities, and they arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out and saw the great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them. His heart went out to them, had reached out and said, These people have a need, I want to fill it. And it says, because they were like a sheep, not having a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and it's already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy bread, for they have nothing to eat. And so he tells his disciples, send them away. And, or, sorry, his disciples said to him, send them away so they can eat. But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. It's important for us to know that this is not the first time this situation has happened. It is the second time. And so we need to first take a pause and jump over to Matthew 15 and see the first time. This, in Mark 6, is the feeding of the 5,000. In Mark 15 is the feeding of the 4,000. It says, now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitudes because they now continued with me for three days having nothing to eat. And I don't want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And so his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a mul great multitude? So here in the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus said, I want to feed them. And the disciples' question was, okay, Jesus, we understand. You know, you've got good resources. Where do we go and get them? Where do, where do we go get the bread for them? We're in the middle of the wilderness. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. So in the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus took responsibility. He said, they're hungry, I want to feed them. The disciples said, okay, Jesus, you can feed them, but where do we get the bread? We're in the middle of the desert. The feeding of the 5,000 is different. Jesus doesn't take responsibility. He says, you give them something to eat. They've seen Jesus go through this process once. Jesus now tells them what they should do, and now he expects them in time number two, go ahead and do it. He didn't say, I want to feed them. He said, you feed them, which Jesus' expectation was that I should be able to teach you, and then you should have a willing heart to go and do it. So he says, you give them something to eat. And in verse 38, he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they found out that they had five loaves and two fishes. So with 4,000 people, they had seven loaves and a few fishes. Now we have a greater number of people, and they have five loaves and two fishes. And so he commanded them to make them sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in ranks of hundreds and fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven, he blessed and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all, and they all ate and were filled. Though the disciples, Jesus fully believed they could do this on their own, 
He just said, go do it. He was willing enough and compassionate enough to give them another example. And wherever you've been in your knowledge of what God has said about you, he's willing to sit down one more time and teach you again that all things are possible to him who believes. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments in the fish. 12 baskets from five loaves, two fishes, 12 baskets. You know, people are like, oh, these are, these are amazing things, but you know, that just doesn't happen today. I have friends who have lived this. You want to know what was going on at the height of the Greek crisis in 2008? My friends had nothing, but yet fed hundreds of people every day. They would make a pot of soup, and it would last the week. They would pull all the pasta out of the cupboard. No idea where they're going to get the money to buy more. Come the next day, open the cupboard, and there's more pasta in there. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed, but what people are willing to let him do has. What will you believe him for? It says, now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men, which tells us it is probably between 15 and 20,000 people total, eight. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. And while he sent the multitude away, and when he had sent them away, he departed into the mountains to pray. Why? When you've gone through a difficult experience or you've been putting out for so long, remember to stop refill yourself and redirect your heart so he went off to pray his disciples got in a boat and took off to the other side and it says now when evening came the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw them straining and rowing for the wind was against them and now about the fourth watch of the night, so it's in the middle of the night, they've been rowing since the sun started to set. You know that these guys are tired. They've been rowing and rowing and rowing and getting nowhere. They are tired. Their strength has left them. And here comes Jesus, and it says, walking on the sea, and he would have passed them by. That's, that's the picture. They're, they're going, and here comes Jesus. <laughs> Do you not think he knows that they're having a hard time? He was with them when they got in the boat before he went to pray. He knows how long they've been doing this for. And God knows how long you've been doing this for. He doesn't care if it's been a day, it hasn't been a month, been 40 years. He doesn't care that you're struggling. What will you believe? Why did Jesus not go to them? Because they've already been in the boat with him when he said, peace, be still. And just like with the 4,000 that needed to be fed versus the 5,000, Jesus showed them what they should do and then expected them to do it. So here they are struggling. But you need to know that in the midst of your struggle, the miracle is already present. Stop looking for God to intervene and stand up and use the power he's already given you. He said, all authority and all power has been given unto me. Now you go. 
Take the things you've seen of me and heard of me and learned from me. Let them get in your heart and let them become your responses. And so Jesus sees them struggling and he passes right on by. And it says, when they saw him in the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and they cried out. And for they all saw him and they were troubled. And immediately he talked with them. Finally, he's like, well, maybe I should stop. <laughs> and he says, guys, be of good cheer. It's me. Don't be afraid. He expected that to be already be their posture. Because he's lived his ministry before them saying, I'm leaving peace with you. Not as the world gives, but my peace. And he went up into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. You notice he didn't even say anything. He just got in the boat. And the peace that was with him walking on the water now came in with them. You know, I like the, the John, uh, book of John's version better of this because it says he got in the boat, the wind ceased, and they were immediately at the shore. It wasn't just, okay, guys, I know you're tired, and you've rowed all night, the wind stopped, but gay, you still got half the lake to go. No. When Jesus does a miracle, he takes it the whole way. And it says, and they were greatly amazed in themselves, beyond measure, and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. So now we see what the problem was. What does he mean when he says hardened? It's the word poru, and the, ro the root for that word means like a stone. It means closed off, sealed off. It means to grow hard, callous, to become dull, and to lose the power of understanding. They'd been present in the miracle, but not let the miracle maker become their heart response. And we can be in the presence of amazing things and still allow our hearts to be closed off. Being like, oh, that's good, that's amazing, look what Jesus did. And then be like, oh wait, I'm a son and daughter of God too. And John said, as he is, so are we in this world. Don't look for a miracle, become a miracle. Let your faith rise up. Let there be an absolute conviction and unqualified assurance that what the word of God is true and let the word work through you. The prophet Ezekiel said, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you and I'll take the heart of stone out. He said their hearts were hardened. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh, meaning I'll give you a soft, responsive moldable heart again when we recognize that maybe i've become callous to the things of god and i i think i speak to myself a lot when i preach and when i look at myself i know there's times where i'm like i think i've started to harden my heart god is always faithful to soften it once again when we recognize where we're at when we're honest about what the situation is when we let the word of god illuminate it you just say, God, soften my heart once again. Let your light flood it one more time. And just like the disciples, he's faithful to teach the lesson again. Let's wrap up with Mark chapter 8. He's having a dispute 
with the Pharisees in Mark 8. And his disciples are present. And it says, then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign. They wanted to see a miracle. They were testing him. They wanted to see a sign from heaven. They're saying, come on, prove it to me, Jesus. Show me. Basically, they're saying, dance, monkey, dance. And we know that Jesus already said in Matthew that their hearts were far from him. And so they're seeking the sign where Jesus was wanting them to become one. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them getting into the boat again and departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf. Everyone say one. In the boat with them. And he turned to them and he charged them saying, take heed and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What was he talking about? The hardness of their heart. Disciples, we already know that their hearts aren't fully opened at this point, And they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we have no bread. <laughs> and you got to think when they say things like that, Jesus is like, I want to slap you right now, Peter. Come on. Seriously? You think it's about the bread? I just took seven loaves and fed 4,000. I took five loaves and fed 5,000. You brought one. Do you not think that is enough? And when we take inventory of our lives, we often look and say, I don't have it all. No, but you, what you have is enough. And it says, Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I took the five loaves and the five, the five thousand? How many baskets of fragments did you take up? And they said, twelve. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. This is interesting. With the 4,000, he had seven loaves and a few fishes, and they took up seven extra baskets. With the 5,000, they had five loaves and two fishes, and they took up 12. Sometimes God can do more with less. And the world's mentality is, I need more when what you have is more than enough. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. And he said to them, how is it that you don't understand? Well, it doesn't matter if we've been in that position in the past. Here's what the wisest man that ever lived said. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Don't let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them, and they are health to all their flesh. He's saying, if you need to change, the word will change you. It'll become life to you again. It'll even become health to your flesh. But he ends it with a warning. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring, fountain 
the issues of life. Keep means to tend it like a garden. Gardens take daily work, not occasions. Passion Translation says, So above all, guard the affections of your heart, for they affect all that you are. Pay attention to the welfare of your innermost being. From there flows the wellspring of life. And so whatever situation we find ourselves in, Ezekiel said, God will give you a new heart. He'll put a new spirit in you. He'll take out the heart of stone out of your flesh, and he'll give you a soft one. So, Father, we thank you for your word. And as you said, come before you with an honest heart and put our full assurance and our confidence on you. And so right now, we all know that there's areas of our hearts that have become cold and callous and hardened. We just say once again, Lord, soften our hearts. Let us see as you see and hear as you hear. Let us recognize that the miracle is already present among us. And we thank you for it. Now maybe you're here today or you're watching us via the internet and you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life. That's the first step. He says, all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so we want to pray with you right now and we want your hearts to open and let Jesus flood into you. So church, why don't we pray with them today? Say, Father, we thank you for Jesus. And right now we receive him. We call you Lord. We let you flood our hearts and make them soft again. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed with that prayer with us today, we would love for you to get in contact with us. And we'd love to get some resources into your hand and get you hooked up with a good church from wherever it is in your region. If you're in the Smith Falls region, we say welcome home. And maybe you guys today, today is not ever the end. There's always a future and a hope and a new heart for you. Amen. Pastor Robin.